Okay, welcome to the first episode of Anti-Capitalist Radio. My name is Simon Hanna, and also joining me is Rowan Fortune. Rowan, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm uh, Rowan Fortune, also of Anti-Capitalist Resistance, and looking forward to this conversation. Brilliant. So <laughs> what we thought we'd start off with, uh, since this is a, uh, a dry run, is uh, a bit of a talk about a recent video that Owen Jones, uh, who's a um, left-wing British journalist, put up a few days ago, mm. talking about how whilst the Conservative government has recently brought forward a, a mini-budget which caused absolute market calamity and um, nearly caused a run on the pound and collapsed pe- pension funds and forced the Bank of England to do a quite radical intervention into the bond market to try and keep things afloat. Uh, and then that obviously led to a very serious political crisis for the Conservative Party and the Prime Minister and the Chancellor responsible for this had to, had to resign. Uh, Owen Jones makes the point that actually a, a left Labour government wouldn't have this problem and that a left Labour government would be able to uh, work with the bankers and the um, people in charge of finance to ensure that there wasn't any kind of economic turbulence during a Labour-left government. Uh, I was wondering what you thought about that, Rowan. Yeah, I mean, I think he's very much engaged in a conversation with Keir Starmer that is seeming like it's a conversation with the Tories. In actual fact, I don't think he really even, I mean, at least logically, doesn't really separate it into a left or right issue because by his own logic, the problem with what she did in terms of the run on the pound was to shock the markets. Uh, you know, I'm talking about Liz Truss, obviously, um, and the minibus shit. And if she had just prepared the way through Owen Jones' logic, and if she just sort of given an indication of what she was going to do ahead, perhaps that wouldn't have happened. Um, it's, I, you know, I, I think that obviously he would have an issue with what Liz Trust would do anyway in terms of tax cuts rather than protecting spending and increasing spending. But really, the idea is the economic shock comes from incompetence and irresponsibility, not from any kind of government borrowing that's uncosted. Uh, That's what's being defended here. And I think it's crucial for Owen Jones to defend that as a left-wing social democrat, because any left-wing social democratic program is going to involve, to some degree, increased spending. And, And given the challenges that face you know, just just social reproduction at this point, uh, probably quite large scale spending. So he obviously cites the Corbyn period and what John McDonnell did in order to pave the way for such large increases in spending. And, and he cites the sort of prawn cocktail offensive of, of that period as an indication of how you would go about this in, in the correct way. And, and what yeah, was my view. cocktail offensive? Yeah, so the prawn cocktail offensive is is sort of named after uh, a, a, something that Tony Blair and, and Gordon Brown got up to ahead of their landslide victory in in the nineties in the late nineties, 
uh, to reassure the cities and business leaders that a Labour government wouldn't be a disaster to to sort of get business in the city on side. I think John McDonnell's efforts were quite different from Blair's. I think Blair was quite genuinely reassuring the business sector that they were on side, whereas I think what John McDonnell was doing was at least ameliorating fears. Like there was obviously going to be huge differences between the kind of proposals that the Corbyn administration would have made relative to the ones that Blair made in a obviously quite different economic climate anyway, because one of the problems with an economic project like that today, and I think that we will probably go into this a bit more, is that profitability is low. We're having sort of global crises uh, around inflation. There's a particular regional problem with energy. And so the conditions of the late 90s that, that Blair was stepping into just don't pertain today in terms of what you can actually do with the states without spooking the markets. So yeah, I think Owen Jones is probably on surface being quite naive here. I think there's probably more going on than naivety. I think the idea that the markets wouldn't have been spooked by Corbynism is is naive. And I think it's also contrary to the very project of Corbynism itself. Like even Corbyn and John McDonnell were always keen to stress that there would be deep struggle around how a administration with them interacts with the markets. I guess that goes to the contradiction at the heart of not only just Corbynism, but the Labour left project itself, which is that, um, is it a direct challenge to British capitalism uh, through a parliamentary route, which is designed to kind of gradually dismantle capitalism and replace it with something else? Uh, Or is it a compromise with capitalism uh, where you're, I guess, going back to a mixed economy with a strong welfare state or something like that, um, because it really seems to me that, as you said, it's a bit naive if you've got a radical socialist economic programme to imagine that won't spook the capitalist money markets. Um, but I guess that is then quite revealing from what Owen Jones's perspective is, as well as maybe also John McDonald's and, and Jeremy Corbyn's and you know people who were kind of strategic uh, hmm. leaders of the Labour left during that period that um, they believed in their own heads that they could come into power and then through kind of chatting up stockbrokers and hedge fund managers and chief financiers, they could con- kind of convince them that actually the Corbyn government would be good for British capitalism, I guess. Because, I mean, like, that's what the that's what the financial markets care about is um, is is business good today? Is business going to be better tomorrow? Um, and I guess really the history of the Labour left to a degree is very contradictory on that because on the one hand you get quite radical like rhetoric and outbursts against capitalism and inequality. Um, but in practice you do kind of get this impression that they believe they can modify the system and change it to a degree but essentially they would be better managers of the system and i guess yeah that, I, that's the kind of kind of contradiction yeah i think i think that's exactly right i think that point about how you manage the system exactly gets at the mentality of the labor left but i do think that there are real 
not just contradictions in thought, but cognitive dissonances and also different factions of the Labour left in terms of what they believe. John McDonnell was always willing to rhetorically pose himself as quite a lot more radical, even though his actual politics was more real politic. It was actually more ameliorating. Whereas Corbyn doesn't really discuss much more in terms of his economic vision than a kind of radical new consensus, like sort of going back really to to something like the post-war consensus, but more socially liberal. Um, And I think that's, that's a, you know, there was, there was even a sort of disagreement at the top on that. And then in terms of the Corbyn base, I think people would frequently talk as if a more Keynesian administration was anti-capitalist. You know, you, you had kind of rhetoric that was completely out of sync with the policy agenda that was being supported. And Labour obviously has a long problem with any kind of political education because the project itself with all of these contradictions is not really well served by political education. So even on the Labour left, I think there was very little of that kind of theory going on. I think in terms of Owen Jones, you know, he's uh, committed an honest social democrat with all the contradictions and and all of the priorities that that implies. And I think that in making this case, what he's really trying to do, as I sort of hinted earlier, is aim a political message at Starmer. And he does make, I think, a really good point in the video, which is that Starmer's position is likely to erode the base that Starmer will gain thanks to the current Tory crisis. I think that's very true. I think that Starmer's position, which will be to offer very little to a lot of people during a period where the crisis is going to be hurting them massively, and this includes even potential Tories coming over to the Labour camp in light of the mortgage crisis, because I don't think Starmer really has a solution for that either, certainly not a long-term solution that's going to cause him political turmoil in the future. And I think any idea that this is merely an issue of Tory competency is going to be really quickly eroded by the reality of uh, what a Starmer government can actually do. Yeah, I think that's totally right, because the, the, the problem for any government in this situation where British capitalism is really in a very weak situation, and it's obviously a chronic problem but there's been a series of quite major shocks to British capitalism over the last decade <clears throat> which mean it's in an even weaker uh, uh, kind of basis to even be able to reproduce itself uh, you know than it was before um, that's obviously not even taking into account s- s- some of the global uh, problems um, a- any any starmer or, or, or labor government in power will have to choose which direction it goes in is it going to have a more radical approach towards, you know, things like taxation or socialization of, you know, key industries like energy production or um, uh, even even petrochemical, um, or is it going to fall back on kind of austerity light, um, which is obviously the you know the program that Ed Miliband opted for. Um, after 2010, uh, and is obviously the program that Keir Starmer is obviously going to opt for as well. 
Um, it would have actually been very interesting, obviously, if there had been a Corbyn government to see which way Corbyn would have gone on it. I mean, I'm I'm a bit more of a structuralist in the sense that, you know, I feel that uh, even if you've got very honourable, decent people at the, you know, in charge of the Labour Party, mm. uh, you know, people who have spent their whole lives being, you know, very consistently on the side of working people and their struggles, I think once you become not just Labour leader, but also Prime Minister of a imperialist country like Britain, then then there are huge structural and social pressures on you to do what is right for the country. And because you can see that with Attlee in the 1940s as well, sort of when you're in opposition, you're you're the leader of the Labour Party. But when you're in power, you're prime minister of uh, Great Britain and the United Kingdom. Um, And that has huge pressures on you in terms of the, you know, the choices you think you can make and what you can do. Um, and that's obviously, the, you know, the pressures that any government would have. I mean, even the Tories are feeling it now. I mean, because they tried to lurch too far to the right. And British capitalism and the financial markets said, no, we don't want that. And so they effectively helped to oust um, the Tory administration led by Liz Truss. Uh, yeah. and, but, but obviously the same thing could happen if a Labour government was to, quote-unquote, lurch too far to the left. And I guess you're right about Owen Jones's video. It's very much pitched as actually trying to say, no, that 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 wouldn't happen. You wouldn't have a concerted attempt at economic sabotage of a left Labour government just because we would obviously um, butter up the financial markets in advance and convince them that actually business was going to be fine. A left Labour government would be leading the way in investment and new tech and, you know, all those things that the financial mm-hmm. market's like. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that. I think really Owen Jones's concern, as I say, is that internal factional dispute. And I think really sort of moving on from what we've been saying, sort of following through on it, it would be worse for uh, a left project than a, a right one. Because while Liz Truss obviously did go too far in terms of almost overconforming to the ideology of capitalism, I think this is a problem that right-wing libertarians often get into, where they make demands on behalf of the bourgeoisie that exceed what the bourgeoisie actually want to run a, a coherent and competent state. And yeah, that landed where it did. I think that at least what she did in terms of the perspective of the capitalist class doesn't compound a deeper structural problem for them, which is the capacity they have to exploit, which is ultimately where their profits derive from. And the problem of any kind of even semi-radical, even, even, you know, to any degree bettering the condition of the working class in, in a particular place any kind of project that does that is going to, to some extent, lower the rate of exploitation. It's going to give working people more options in terms of work. It's going to give them more options in terms of being out of work, in terms of having some kind of safety net, which will allow them to make stronger demands in the workplace. It's going to give unions more rights to collectively bargain. So it's not just the issue of borrowing in an uncosted way and, and on all of that, but actually just directly impinging on on the profits by doing what social democrats minimally want to do, which is improving living standards. 
and so it's it's a much deeper problem than just making tax cuts that aren't costed it's it's a problem fundamentally of of what you're actually even spending money on as far as the capitalist class is concerned and i think that's something that is just honestly outside of the analysis that someone like uh, owen jones is likely to make not you know in any kind of critical way he's not a marxist and therefore wouldn't agree with with some of the fundamental constituent parts of that analysis yeah it's interesting because that that contradiction goes to the heart of the labor left <clears throat> project which is that i mean it's obviously actually quite utopian i i know i know people on the labor left will call revolutionary socialist utopian um or even dystopian sometimes um but their project is also uh largely utopian in the sense i think it's so riven with contradictions that i don't really think it's workable and like that's that's like a core contradiction which unraveled yeah. in the 1970s was the idea that the labor party or uh, you know a labor government which had strong left forces in it but wasn't necessarily in charge of the government at the time uh was advocating you know a mixed economy uh so large parts of the economy were managed by the government um, but it was in order to prop up failing industries uh, or unprofitable industries uh, in order to ensure that the rest of the economy that was still in private hands could maintain its profitability. Uh, so you've got that as the idea of social democracy as the the way of propping up capitalism. Uh, and then you're you're advocating this mixed economy, partial partial nationalisation, um, whilst at the same time saying there will still be a private sector. The private sector should be heavily taxed to pay for welfare spending. And also workers in the private sector should have a lot of rights. They should have, you know, full trade union rights, you know, the right to a closed shop, the right to walk out of work on strike whenever they like, um, and and all these things. And obviously for the capitalists, that's that's rubbish. They don't want that. Um, and that's obviously partly where the Thatcherite kind of counter-revolution came from was that sort of contradictory way of, trying to manage post-war capitalism, which which the British capitalist class were totally happy or largely happy <clears throat> to live with for a good 20, 25, 30 years or so. Um, but obviously by the time the, you know, the 1970s rolled around and the oil crisis and all those other e- global economic problems were beginning to unravel, um, they really felt it was time for something else. And from their perspective, to unleash that profitability of capitalism to make sure that, uh, you know, they have the right to manage <clears throat> their workplaces. I take on the trade unions, smash them where they're powerful, uh, dismantle the um, nationalised parts of the economy and, you know, and sell them off. Or if they're completely unprofitable, just close them down. Um, and all of that came out of the collapse of that kind of labour idea of the mixed economy and kind of widespread Keynesianism. Mm-hmm ultimately yeah. hitting the buffers under under the realities of capitalism and and i guess that you know <clears throat> that's really where i think owen jones's like analysis and the argument for some people on the labor left really falls apart because i think they really underestimate the capacity of the of the capitalist class to absolutely sabotage and destroy anything they don't like um yeah. uh, i mean i remember the beginning of corbyn's control of the labor party um there was that thing where that um, anonymous 
ex-general or something was in the Telegraph saying, oh, if Corbyn becomes prime minister, there'll be there'll be a military coup or something. Um, and obviously everyone on the socialist left was saying, aha, this just goes to reveal the nature of the British capitalist state and the supporters of British capitalism. But I remember quite a few Labour left uh, people sort of saying, oh, actually, don't worry about it. You know, like it's not a serious threat. Um, obviously, people just respect democracy. Um, and I just think that's woefully naive, the idea that, yeah. um, especially in a racist, imperialist, you know, blood-soaked uh, uh, um, kind of capitalist class and state like Britain has, that they would just go, oh, well, OK, well, you know, we've got a left Labour government now, so I guess we better give them five years to do whatever they want to do. Um, I just think that's I just think that that's that's hopelessly naive. I mean, I think inevitably they have a, a moralistic understanding of these things. And so they don't understand why the capitalist class would need to do that. If they don't understand that there are fundamental contradictions within a capitalist economy that requires a certain degree of exploitation and that it requires different degrees at different periods depending upon the level of the crisis that capitalism is experiencing, then they fundamentally have to moralise these issues. They have to understand what the capitalist class is doing in terms of people who are greedy, who just want to gain more money and, and protect their current position of power. And I think that lends itself to this kind of naivety, because then if the problem is moral, then the solution is moral. You, you make strong, robust moral arguments and you point out to people, enough people, that this is bad behavior, that it's improper behavior, and that should be sufficient. And I think that kind of comes back to a slightly conspiratorial way of even thinking about the right and you know why Keynesian fa Keynesianism failed initially, why we're in this neoliberal period. They see these things in terms of sort of cabals of power enacting secretive plots against the democratic will. And I don't think that's a particularly accurate way of looking at the failure of the post-war consensus, which had very much failed by the time that Thatcher came in. You know, Thatcher certainly didn't, you know, exist in a in a in an economic vacuum, as as I think some of the left like to pretend. There was and, all those rumours of a of a of a, a planned coup in the nineteen seventies. There wasn't there, like Lord Mountbatten, and I mean, I yeah. don't know how much of it is real, but you know, there was definitely a um, a feeling, particularly from Howard Wilson in the second uh, time when he was prime minister. Uh, between 74 and 76 that um yeah kind of there were these powerful forces conspiring against him at the heart of the british state yeah and i mean i i imagine there is probably some truth to that i i am not knowledgeable enough about the sort of coup history i've i've only sort of read little bits on it but it does seem it does seem like that's entirely in line with what Corbyn experienced with, you know, soldiers mock shooting um, target practices with his face on it. And just a lot of, of sort of stuff like that sort of dripped in constantly, at least to give the overwhelming impression that he wouldn't be tolerated as prime minister by established forces, including established security forces. I think that, you know, there's almost certainly periodically, sort of aristocratic style plots in, in certain sectors, you know, 
of, of the British state that are more or less serious um, at various points. And I think mm. Labour has always had difficulty operating through the British state, even at its most mild. You know, I think it's it's fair to say that even the Tony Blair administration, as right wing as as it was, received considerably more critical attention than an average conservative government and that was a labor administration during a period of you know a bubble economy it, it made sure that everything it did was in in a form that was more conducive to the capitalist class you know using sort of the private sector in various ways to to fund its its in, you know, infrastructure investments for example and and as you know, especially in terms of the health sector, we're often with with deep structural problems, and yet it still got routinely lambasted. And there was a sense that no matter how much it veered to the right on social issues, it would always be deemed as you know this kind of nanny state meddling figure. Mm. Which yeah, it, and and so yeah, even if even a Blairite government, even if you know what is now considered to be about as right-wing as, as Labour can get, probably naively. Um, if even that is is intolerable to large sections of, of capital, then, then it's entirely reasonable to think that they might go considerably further than that, especially if it, if it was a significant threat. But I doubt it would be necessary, because as we've seen with Liz Truss, when the markets go haywire, when... when you have something like the housing sector under threat with so much of the middle class invested deeply in in this sector um, and therefore the entire British economy dependent on it. They don't need a military coup there or, or even some kind of, you know, more secret service style coup. They can just get rid of you through that mechanism. It becomes impossible to lead. Yeah. And I guess that's the interesting thing about the shift between the Labour left now or at least a few years ago under Corbyn and, and and what the Labour left was kind of thinking in its its analysis in the late 70s, early 80s, after the defeat of the James Callaghan government in the 1979 general election. Because obviously in the in the late 70s, they were really smarting from the way that Tony Benn had been treated and the idea that um, uh, there was a natural conservative tendency amongst senior civil servants to act against a Labour government um, there was quite a lot of writing around that and analysis about, you know, what would a more radical Labour government do uh, to try and offset the kind of conservative bureaucratic state which it would be trying to run? Because there was actually quite a few examples from the 70s of even the very, I mean, you could argue actually quite right wing in terms of its economic policies, Labour government led by uh, by Jimmy Callaghan, um, <clears throat> even lots of those ministers felt that they faced really uh, kind of concerted attempts at undermining various attempts at decision making, including, you know, civil servants briefing against ministers and kind of working against each other, like against the different departments and things like that. Um, so that like that was a very real feeling of the Labour left in the early 80s, which obviously is also the background to Chris Mullins, a very British coup, the idea that there wouldn't need to be tanks on the street or, um, yeah. A military takeover, as there had been in Chile in 1973 against a reforming um, uh, left uh, government, um, but that just 
the sort of natural conservative ingrained institutions, which is the civil service, the media, um, and so on, would would just kind of work together to undermine any Labour government that attempted to uh, double down on the kind of post-war mixed economy or, you know, extend it or anything like that. And I guess that's sort of... <clears throat> and Because like, you can also see elements of that even in real life in the Labour's... Uh, in the Labour Party 1983 manifesto, where, for instance, it says that it would abolish the House of Lords if there was concerted resistance from the House of Lords to the Labour's, um, to the Labour government's legislative agenda. So they had a kind of view of like, if you let us do what we're going to do in power, then we'll leave you alone. But as soon as you start to sabotage what we've been democratically elected to do, um, then we will abolish the House of Lords. So there was this kind of threat, this kind of Damoclean sword hanging over the House of Lords, which obviously historically has been to the right of elected governments, although very in, like interestingly, over the last few years, it, it, it's been quote unquote to the left in the sense that um, it's tried to sabotage some of the most undemocratic legislation that the Conservative government has put in. But I think that says more about the rightward shift of the Conservatives than it does about the, um, you know, the nature of the House of Lords. Maybe that's a topic for you know for another podcast. Um, but yeah, like I just thought it was interesting to think about the way the Labour left thought and its analysis coming out of the 70s into the early 80s uh, and its conception of the obstacles and problems that it would have in government compared to kind of the Corbyn era where, um, yeah, sort of, I don't think that like that kind of thing was really problematised. The only thing they still really had a lot of grievances against was obviously the right-wing media, um, you know, who obviously just w- waged an absolute uh, character assassination campaign against against Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, but apart from that, they didn't really problematise anything else that might happen if there was actually a genuine left-reforming Labour government in power. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of talk at the time within the Labour Party about what would happen if we got a government, if we got a Labour government during during Corbyn's tenure uh, in terms of the sort of sometimes it's referred to as the deep state, which is a term I, I don't like because of its associations with the far right. And I think it tends to uh, devalue the contradictions within the capitalist state. It sort of it, yeah, lends itself to a more conspiratorial way of thinking about the state as a kind of coherent entity that has sort of a unidirectional set of intentions. But I think, yeah, he would have received huge opposition. And I think it was a constant worry that, the basis of Corbyn's support in the country would potentially be quite weak, dependent on people who, yes, maybe had joined the Labour Party or who had voted enthusiastically for a Corbyn administration, but had shown very low levels of activity. Um, And I think the feeling was that to back a lot of the kind of reforms that were proposed, you would need immense street presence of, of huge numbers of people against what was being done. I, I even talked to people at the time who thought that that would spontaneously emerge during a Corbyn period in outrage of what the state did, which would then precipitate more radical things. I, I think that's naive, given what we saw during that period in terms of activity, which I think was quite muted, um, largely, you know, to you know, uh, uh, the activist left was was kind of the, it really. You know, huge numbers of people in the Labour Party, but most of them remained inactive. There was kind of a very much a sense of just hope that 
if we voted the right way, we would get everything. And I think the more problematic side of what Owen Jones is doing today is kind of staying with that passivity, really the message of that passivity. You know, we we should put pressure on Starmer, maybe, but that's about it. That's about all we can do. There's no real sense of a broader political project here. Now, having said that, I think Owen Jones is useful in terms of what he does. He's a left-wing journalist in a media that's overwhelmingly to the right. He's fantastic when it comes to sort of championing the marginalized. I don't want to sort of seem as if I'm sort of unduly attacking Owen Jones. And I also don't want to step into that sort of Marxist trap of getting angry at somebody simply not for being a Marxist. Uh, Hopefully it's sort of our job to to persuade people to adopt our ideas rather than just berate them for not already having them. But Owen Jones, please become a Marxist. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yes, Owen Jones should become a Marxist. Everybody should. Yeah. Um, but um, but yes, um, I think I think that there's there's a there's a lack of any kind of agency in the vision that social democrats, even radical social democrats, can put forward because it fundamentally requires nothing more than this kind of agitating and really we haven't seen the success of that approach for quite a long time i think the last time would be the period that you've written on um with the with the poll tax riots and and how that sort of basically took down a government but really what we've seen since then with the iraq war and and the protests around that with brexit and the protests around that uh, with the students uh, coming under more and more severe debt and, and the protests around that, is that this kind of agitation that social democrats champion hasn't really actualized any kind of real change um, and that they don't really have any other ideas. Now, I think in fairness to the social democrats, Marxists have been pretty lagging in in ideas too in terms of how we can actually affect things. But I think there's a more fundamental critique of of the state and how it interacts with the economy within Marxism that at least explains why we're in the mess we're in right now uh, that, that unfortunately social democrats really don't have without just appealing to sort of moral reasons to object to this or that Tory. Yes, I think that's a really interesting point because... If you go on social media, uh, which I definitely don't recommend, um, because there's a lot of like negativity on there. Uh, there's a there's a number of people um, who used to be in Labour under Corbyn, obviously very animated and you know really involved in the project, and then have been absolutely burnt out and demoralised by Keir Starmer's shifting of the party to the right to the point where it's uh yeah there's i think 150,000 people have left labor since starmer became leader um and i guess that's that's something that is kind of a material effect on politics in a way but the danger is that those people don't really end up doing anything or they just kind of live on twitter you know sort of complaining and so on because really what needs to be built is a mass movement that can pressure starmer and the Labour Party. There's a great quote from Michael Foote in the 60s where he says, um, a Labour MP is only as good as the movement behind them, um, which is, I think, in, in history of the Labour Party, the better elements of the Labour Party believed and knew that they were hostages to the parliamentary institution and the pressures of British capitalism and the media. 
And therefore, they needed to be able to point to a mass movement of people, strikes, mass protests and so on, to be able to say, uh, actually, yeah, we've got to do something about this mass housing issue or the low wages or, you know, the rights of women or LGBTQ plus people, because there was a movement that was on the streets demanding those things or there's mass strike action or something. Whereas if there's nothing like that, if there's no real movement from below, then, yeah, the Labour MPs, even the good ones or the better ones, will end up kind of sucked into the, you know, the institutionalisation of Parliament and all of the yeah. kind, of, kind of conservative reactionary politics that come with it. I think this gets a, another kind of contradiction that exists within the Labour Party, which is that, as you say, to be radical, or at least within any kind of radical vision for the Labour Party, that is, which is to be radical, they must constantly depend upon this mass base of struggle outside of Parliament, but also that to exist in Parliament, they often require their activist base to be involved in the parliamentary process, which has a tendency to de-radicalise and demotivate that kind of extra-parliamentary, non-parliamentary struggle. And so they end up kind of withering their own base. I mean, there's a sort of saying in the US that the Democratic Party is where radical politics goes to die. And I think that kind of applies to some extent to Labour. This is, I guess, the more ultra argument against parliamentary involvement, that the contradiction tends to wither away radical politics. And I think, well, that point can become fetishistic about not involving yourself with parliamentary politics. There is nonetheless still a point there about the tendency of that kind of involvement to demotivate and to de-radicalize people. You know, there's I'm sure everyone has examples, anyone who's been in the Labour Party has examples of people who went in under the Corbyn administration and shifted slowly to a more sort of right-wing perspective as they accommodated to the demands of the of the Labour Party. But I think more broadly than that, there's also this expectation that the Labour Party will deliver on radical demands that can demotivate people. The kind of looking to old man Corbyn to deal with the difficulties of the labor, you know, the 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 difficulties of society. Um and not to any kind of radical struggle can sort of create and engender passivity in the long run. Um, and I think, yeah, that's that's a problem with the whole social democratic thing. It's not just that it has these inherent contradictions, it's that it creates passivity. And I think what's fundamental to the Marxist vision, uh, the Marxist vision that isn't Stalinist or or in in some other way co-opted into existing society is is that it fundamentally depends on a, a view of agency of class agency and that's not exactly nurtured through parliamentary activity of any kind. Yeah, um, I think all those are very real problems um, in terms of. <clears throat> the reality of trying to build socialist politics within Labour or, you know, even even to challenge the kind of mainstream of Labour uh, to move it a bit to the left, I think. And, and again, this is part of the demoralisation that people are feeling is that, 
Um, there's actually very little you can do. I mean, if you're not an MP, um, you you can pass motions at your branch meetings or your CLPs, or you can try and get a motion to conference. But even at conference, motions can be voted on and then just completely ignored. I mean, that was also the case under Corbyn. I think it's worth pointing out conference in 2019 adopted a motion in favour of free movement and open borders. And then within a few hours, Diane Abbott and other people from the Labour front bench under Corbyn said, uh, it doesn't change anything. That's not our policy. So, I mean, obviously the right wing do it all the time. There was a, there was a famous thing under Tony Blair where uh the uh the conference kept on voting for the nationalization of rail it was almost like a religious act all, all the activists would come every year there'd be a motion from the rmt back when they were affiliated to the labor party uh to renationalize rail and it would be voted for by the majority of delegates but then obviously tony blair would turn around and say you know well good for you but that doesn't change our politics policy ultimately in labor of course is not decided by conference or the members i mean when they come yeah. to write the manifesto they're meant to consider the conference policy, but they don't have to incorporate it if they don't want to. Um, there was also the thing, obviously, where you know Keir Starmer said, even if Labour conference does adopt a position of supporting uh, PR as a voting system, that's not going to change Labour's position on it. And he said that in advance of the conference. So I can see why people are very demoralised, and that, that, that's even when you're in Labour. Um, it's actually very hard to shift things and to and to uh, make sure your voice is heard, because obviously it's actually not a democratic party in any meaningful way. Um, but obviously people outside of Labour feel you know, quite demoralised with it. But I guess, I guess the thing I just wanted to wrap up on was that, uh, and there was a bit of an argument around this on Twitter as well, where I think there's, there's, there's obviously calls for a general election, and the, the TUC has called a, a rally uh, on Wednesday, the 2nd of November, and there's a People's Assembly demonstration on November the 5th about, uh, yeah, tr- like trying to get a general election. But I've seen quite a few ex-Labour members sort of say, oh, I mean, Starmer's as bad as the Tories, doesn't make any difference, we shouldn't support a general election. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if the Tories or, or, or a Labour party, they're by Starmer is in charge. And I think that's fundamentally a mistake. And it's not necessarily over that Labour's policies might be better. Um, I think it's a bit ultra-left to say that None of Labour's policies are better than the Tories' policies. I think they will have some policies which are marginally better. But for me, it's not about the policies. I think it's that millions and millions of people are going to vote Labour to try and get rid of the Tories. Lots of trade unionists, young people, uh, the black and minority ethnic communities um, across the country or across the countries uh, are going to vote for them. And there's going to be a real hope in people's vote that Labour will be better and different i think socialists have to try and engage with that in some way and i think there's a bit of a danger where people are just oh well what we need to do is just denunciate you know or like denounce we need to sort of denounce starmer denounce labor right wing useless no good pro-capitalists and i don't think that really connects you with where millions of people are at i mean if there was millions of people voting for an explicitly socialist party in 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 um in the uk or in britain uh, then that would be a completely different question, but there's not. Um, people are, are are going to orientate to Labour and to vote for it, and I guess, I guess having some kind of tactical appreciation of that rather than just say, you know, Labour under Starmer is as bad as the Tories, which I think for lots of people just doesn't doesn't really connect with where they're at, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I I think 
I think that the, one of the problems we face is that this whole discussion necessarily not because of of where anybody particularly is is at the level of tactics rather than strategy. Uh, I think that's a, a distinction that is too infrequently made, partly because making it does invite certain uncomfortable truths for the left that it really currently lacks the material capacities to be particularly strategic. You know, I, I doubt honestly that the left currently has the forces to determine whether or not there's an election, which isn't to say that there won't be, but is merely to say that whether or not there is is, is not going to be um, a matter for the left. And I think there are issues with how you do and don't activate people and and what different kinds of people you're talking to in different ways. I think it, you're right that it's important to be able to talk to people who have hope in a Labour government and um, that those people aren't simply abandoned by by the left in, in a kind of ultra mood. I also think that it's important to be able to talk not only to sort of people who are demoralized having gone through the Labour project, which I think maybe are overrepresented on Twitter, certainly are overrepresented on our Twitters, um, as, as people who have been through that ourselves. But also, I think, to a lot of communities, especially marginalized communities, who perhaps don't have that kind of faith in the Labour project. You know, I think that there's probably very little faith right now in the labor project for queer people there's there's probably very little faith for um roma gypsy and traveler people i I can't really back that up but from what i've seen i I wouldn't imagine there's a huge amount of faith in in labor given their own internal problems with being anti-queer and and anti-grt so i think it's important to be able to discuss the various different reactions people have to to a labor project in, in a nuanced way, but also to be able to build something beyond that. So my my main thing wouldn't be alongside maybe people who say that we shouldn't have a general election, um, but that maybe a general election shouldn't be our foremost priority on the left right now. Maybe that shouldn't be the... Um, what we're directing our limited capacities to. But I think until we've dealt with this, the inability to develop a long-term strategy, which is exactly that, the, the ability to develop an approach that gets us to where we want to be, rather than just responding to tactically particular circumstances as and when they emerge. I think that's that's a very, um, I think that's, that's the key issue today. And I think it, it requires really sitting uncomfortably with ourselves and and our current weaknesses. That's it for this edition of Anti-Capitalist Radio. Tune in more next time.